Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, legendary entrepreneur Nigel Eccles. He's the founder of FanDuel, and FanDuel is the category king in a, a category that emerged several years ago called Daily Fantasy Sports. And we go deep on how FanDuel created and ultimately dominated this mega category. As a matter of fact, Forbes today says that the daily fantasy sports game category is growing at about 41% annually, and by 2020, will be a $14.5 billion category. We also talk about how Nigel and his team at FanDuel built a super engaged community, how they beat the snot out of their primary competitor, DraftKings, in what I think is one of the most epic category battles uh, in consumer tech of late. He also, uh, he's doing a new thing now. He's the founder of a company called Flick in the podcasting space. So we also talk about why uh, Nigel thinks podcasting is a massive growth opportunity, his motivation for starting Flick. And Flick is a mobile app that connects podcast listeners who want to engage on a deeper level with the content around the podcast, want to engage with podcast creators and other fans of podcasts. And um, given that's what Nigel's now doing, uh, we sort of set up a beta, ver, a beta um, follow your different group on Flick. So if you want to check out that, um, you can download Flick Chat in the Apple App Store um, and you can find us there as well. This conversation is fantastic and it's another great example of the power of a real dialogue because it's a very unique opportunity to go deep with a super accomplished multi-time entrepreneur. Now, our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check them out at splunk.com. That's splunk.com. And our friends at Oracle NetSuite want to help you turbocharge the growth of your business. Go to netsuite.com different, and there you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So we had five co-founders. Uh, we lived in Edinburgh uh, in Scotland. Um, we not only had we never played fantasy sports before, um, actually, of the five of us, I don't think we'd ever watched more than five sporting, you know, American sporting events. Right? Like <laughs> this was, you know, we literally had to learn the rules uh, when we when we started this company. Like my you CMO, didn't know what a safety in football was. It gets worse. Right? My CMO didn't know what NFL stood for. Like <laughs> oh, it that's was probably the perfect CMO for you. That's, <laughs> it was we were we knew nothing about American sports, um, but you know we had an idea, and I, actually we had it, it was interesting. People in the fantasy sports industry thought what we were doing was just kind of too simple. Um, that they, it was interesting in the industry, they all had these ideas for new fantasy sports products and they were like, hey, it's this product's awesome. It's like, you know, five points for this and three points for this, but, but if it's like a reverse pass, it's this. And, and, and I'm like, oh my God, this is like so confusing. I want to build something that 
anyone can play that you can just like click on an ad and you can go oh yeah it kind of looks like yahoo that's easy oh the, the rules are like yeah it's as simple i can play so we wanted to build something that was so simple that even we could play and and i think that actually was a big part of the success of the company that the fact that we knew nothing we had to build it make it really simple you know it's so fascinating you say that because uh, what the research shows on entrepreneurship is generally the entrepreneur or entrepreneurs come from the industry, right? Which, mm-hmm. which makes yes. sense. The person yeah, yeah. sort of experiencing the problem or seeing the opportunity is mm-hmm. somebody that's in it. But there's a flip side to that. We actually wrote about it a little bit in Play Bigger that people outside the industry are completely naive, are, yeah. I like to refer to it as stupid enough to think it's possible. Yeah. And so I find this hysterical that five folks in Edinburgh, Scotland, created yeah. a category king in, in fantasy sports in the United States. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, like it, 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 I think that's absolutely true. Like Certainly, we brought in and hired people, and also we immersed ourselves in it. It wasn't like we didn't spend our entire life in ignorance. We, we now know what the NFL stands for. I kind of know what a safety is. Um, you know, so we definitely immersed ourselves. We hired people in the industry, but we we basically came in with yeah the naivety that we could transform it, and also taking a viewpoint of how do we make it really simple? How do we make it more mass market? Uh, and so I think the kind of ignorance in a way kind of helped. Yeah. Now I'm so fascinated to talk to you because as I think about FanDuel and what you accomplished, and then I of course want to talk about what you're doing today because. Mm-hmm. It's very cool, and there's some interesting corollaries and connections. But with FanDuel, and I may get this wrong, so you'll help me. But if I were yeah, to yeah. sort of a, a you know the beloved Venn diagram, mm-hmm. right? You, obviously, you have sports, you have yeah. fantasy sports, um, you have um, um, this notion of sort of um, this Twitch-like capability where people are playing together. So there's this yeah. community thing, right? And so mm-hmm. you created this thing that encompasses playing a game yeah but is inherently uh steeped in this community yeah and and of course a digital community people used yeah, to have yeah. fantasy sports leagues at work or whatever mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now it's a digital community and everybody today is talking about how do we drive engagement how do we drive yeah. community and yeah. your whole business was about creating really one of the first great community highly engaged, quote unquote, platforms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But can you sort of, you know, walk me back through how you figured out how to do all that? Yeah. So I, you know, it's only in the last 18 months since I've stepped away from the business that I had an opportunity to figure out what we did. Like when we were doing it, we were just doing it. We didn't, I don't know that we really reflected that hard on it. But now when I reflect back on it, where we were, 10 years ago when we started FanDuel is fantasy sports was played by something like 25 million people in North America. Um, And it is a great game. Like it it is a game where uh, many people who play fantasy football will say draft day is the best day of their life, you know? And then throughout that season, it's this, it's just this really great way of engaging other people. You would see people just strike up conversations at bars about fantasy football. Um, and so it's a really cool game and keep people connected. Like college buddies will like re-meet 10, 15, 20 years later in the same league. Um, and we had this idea that uh, 
what if we could connect these people to play f- not just in their friends' leagues, but in much bigger leagues, leagues with 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, a million people? Um, and what if we could sort of build a community around that? And that's essentially what we did is we, they had the shared language of fantasy sports. They had the shared love of sports. And they wanted to compete. Like they wanted to show like, you know, I've won my league three years in a row. I can actually, I want to go to the big stage. And we were giving them that big stage um, and, and that they could compete. And, and we did a number of things to create that community. So at a very basic level, we created chat, like a chat product on the, on the site. And it was just this chaotic, um, you know, hyper busy where people would connect with each other and chat. It, it got, so bad that we actually had to take it down. It was just unmanageable as we scaled. We had forums where people could chat at a more, um, you know, a measured pace, a more thoughtful pace. Uh, but and then on top of that, one of the biggest ones was we had is live events and live events, which was something we cooked up over a couple of days. We were like, well, we've got these tournaments and people play online. What if we said, okay, people are going to qualify and then they'll where the top 10 people are going to go to Vegas and play. This is something you could do remotely. There's no need to go to Vegas to do it. And say, so, well, what if we sort of say as part of the prize, we're going to fly to Vegas, we're going to put you up in a hotel, and we're going to play the final game in Vegas. And we did that, I think that was uh, summer of 2010 was the first one, or in, in the fall of 2010. You know, 10 finalists, the prize pool of 50,000. And it was phenomenal because it started to connect people who were players with each other and it started to build a community. And that community meant that people wanted to do it more and more because they wanted to hang out with their friends. They wanted to compete with them. They wanted to show that they were the best within that community. And those live finals, it went from so that we had 10 finalists, we had 50,000 in prizes to, I think, one of at peak 2015, uh, the prize pool was somewhere in the region of i'm thinking five million um we had a hundred finalists uh where even the person who came a hundred um uh, you know walked away with uh, i think he walked away with like twenty thousand dollars so it but it, it's moving away from the number of the money it really was about that community starting off with like chat then forums then live events you built this community that engaged with each other and that's what brought people back to the product every day. The product was fun, but it was the fact that you're competing with other people, many of which you knew, that made it really interesting. It's so incredible. And of course, today now, and in a big part, thanks to you and your colleagues and others, but we have mm-hmm. this, this new category called eSports yeah. Athlete. <laughs> yes. Right? And, and there's people who do fantasy sports. Yeah, like yeah. On FanDuel, and of course, there's the video gamers. And of course, yeah. there's... Big cross over overlap yes. of them, right? People yeah. who play video games uh, yeah. are often um, uh, fantasy sports players and so forth. And, mm-hmm. But like, maybe this makes me a naive idiot, but did you ever <laughs> anticipate that many thousands of people would get together to watch people play fantasy sports? Uh, yeah, like we certainly had people... To come to the live finals and they were you know they would support it you know esports is a is a sort of different category in that um so with 
with uh, fantasy sports, you're watching the actual sporting event. Um, although you may be cheering on in a very different way from anyone else because you're cheering for that running back, but not that one. And certainly not the quarterback because he's on your opponent's team. It gets quite complicated. So with fantasy sports, you're watching the live sports. With esports, you know, you're watching the actual gamer play. Um, and it's... Uh, you know, part of, and I think there's a generational thing where people like struggle, like, why would you, why would you watch it when you could play it? And then to which you answer, say, well, why do you watch football when you could play football? And to the extent that, and when you speak to, you know, people who, who watch a lot of esports, they're like, I love watching people at the very top of the game. I love watching to see what they can do, things that I could only ever dream of doing. That's really exciting to see what they can do in, in a game that I love. Yeah. The only, you know, and this is not my world, so I don't mm-hmm. have a personal experience of it. Um, uh, but the only thing I can relate to of late, um, did you happen to pay any attention to the the recent run on Jeopardy with this player, James Holzhauer? Oh, yes, I heard about it, but I didn't watch it. I'm not a Jeopardy guy at all. Trivia is mm-hmm. not my thing. Yeah, I yeah. You know, I, I don't, you know, I'm dyslexic and have all these other things. <laughs> I call it dysphuglia. And so I... All that yeah. stuff feels like math to me. But, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, so I'm not a Jeopardy watcher, but this guy transformed the way people play the game. Yeah. Because he, was a, he, he makes his living. He went high risk, didn't he? he went, yeah, well, he makes his living as a sports betting guy. He lives in right. Vegas. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah. And, and, of course, he was super smart on trivia shit, and he trained himself for years. Like, this was something mm-hmm. he built himself to. Yeah. And so on, on, on Jeopardy, by way of example, normally they'd start off at the $200 question, and then mm-hmm. they'd work their way down to the $1,000 question. And he would just go, bam, to the $1,000 question. <laughs> yeah. Take yeah. all of those out. And then the $800 questions. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. for the daily doubles, which he could double his money on. Mm-hmm. And his average winning over, I can't remember how many episodes, but I mean it giant amount of episodes was $70,000. And I think the average winning for, for the, you know, uh, highest champion per show prior to that was in the $40,000. Wow. Yeah. It was a combination of both knowledge around the trivia, but his, his game style and his betting style. And Mm -hmm. even I, I, I started taping Jeopardy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was to see how he did it. Watch this guy. So all of a sudden I thought, Hmm, maybe all these people watching fantasy sports or watching esports, maybe they're not as crazy as I thought they were. <laughs> you know, it's you know, and I think it's and it's very similar. So fantasy sports, what he did with Jeopardy, uh, the stock market's another one. It's uh, and we find a real overlap. Poker is another one. People view it uh, rightly as a puzzle, like as a something that I am going to try and crack. Like, is this um, you know the question of is is alphabet undervalued or overvalued? What's my view of the world? What's my competitive edge on other people? Or, you know, is Tom Brady undervalued or overvalued in this matchup? Or in Jeopardy, what is optimal strategy for winning this game? And that I always find fascinating, talking to our top players about how they looked at the game. And our top fantasy players typically had another thing that they'd come from that they were really involved in. And it would be either investing, a number of them uh, played poker. Um, uh, some of them actually came from esports, but they were all sort of intensely competitive. And they were all quite, a lot of them are very cerebral in the kind of like thinking about how do I unlock this? How do I kind of 
find an edge against the competition? What do I know that they don't know that I can exploit to win this game? And it was just fascinating talking to them. Well, what word did you just use there? Uh, which one? <laughs> you use a funny turn. You used a funny cerebral, cerebral, cerebral. Yes, they're very cerebral. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or some of us say cerebral, but I guess cerebral, cerebral. That was a Britishism, maybe. <laughs> I love it. You know, I'm originally from Canada, but of course my ancestry uh-huh. is Scottish. Yeah, and yeah. So uh, you talk about Edinburgh, you know, uh, Scotland's the only place in the world I go where I don't have to spell my last name. <laughs> yes. And everyone in- you'd, I, you'd get offered, you would offer a tartan, I'm sure, when you're there. You'll oh, absolutely. Got your, yeah, yeah. And um, um, what I love about whether it's Edinburgh or Glasgow or wherever in Scotland that I love to visit, everybody, all the women there sound like my grandmother. That's right. <laughs> so my my so I'm from Northern Ireland. My wife's Scottish, uh, and the funny thing there is that so we live in America now. But uh, and her accent's definitely soft and much more mid Atlantic now. But when she gets angry, it goes fully Scottish. <laughs> fully, yes, fully Scottish, like a hundred percent Scottish. My my kids know when she goes Scottish, then you know the shit's hitting the fan. They're in trouble. Yeah, yeah they're in trouble. Yeah, it's like uh, after a couple beers, my Canadian accent comes flying out real, right. real big. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, I'm curious. You know, this this is an interesting sort of th- uh, thread here about sort of mm-hmm. if if I'm interested in this, then I'm probably interested in these other things, right? Mm-hmm. So, one thing that sort of comes to mind: the difference between with fantasy sports that I, I find interesting, even though I don't play, mm-hmm. is. You know, you watch your favorite teams. You know, we here in the San Francisco Bay Area, of course, of late, we've been in love with the Warriors and mm-hmm. you know, they lost this year and that was a heartbreaker yeah. for us. And But it's fascinating to think about, um, you know, the Warriors by way of example. And and some of us put ourselves in the in the, in the place of a, of a Steph Kerr, a Curry or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or so forth. But some of us put us in the place of a Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. Or of the general management, we and then of course yeah, Moneyball yeah. came out, and I was just checking yes. as you were talking. Moneyball came out in two thousand four, and mm-hmm. I think there were many of us who, for years, even as a little boy growing up watching the Montreal Canadiens and, and the Montreal mm-hmm. Expos, who I adored, you'd sort of think, "Well, hmm, would I have made that trade?" Or yeah, um, yeah. You know, and so a lot of us have these sort. Why did we do that? Or yeah. why did we should have kept that guy? Or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? And so I think. There's many of us that put ourselves in the place of the the manager, the coach, mm-hmm. the general manager, the yeah. you know the person sort of pulling the strings more than the person yeah. that playing the sport. And yeah. you really tapped into that, didn't you? Absolutely. So that that was very much the the big driver behind fantasy sports was that you can be the you can be the general manager. You can make the trades. You can decide the lineup. And, you know, it's fascinating, actually. Mark Cuban, who's been a huge supporter of the industry, uh, he came out and said, he said, I know this is a game of skill because this is what I do in my day job. Like, this is what I do. And this is an opportunity for fans to do the same thing. And he said, you know, and he just sort of tries it. He's the one person who's done both, right? <laughs> he's played fantasy sports. And he actually manages a team. And, and, and actually, a lot of people in the industry, um, a lot of ER players actually worked uh, at teams. Um, then they just, they found it fascinating. Typically, it was interesting as they, they typically to try and keep some separation. Because when you, when you run a football team, it's not fun to run a fantasy football team, but they'd run a fantasy baseball team. And 
it was fascinating talking to them that they 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 felt it was very similar to their job, like the best parts of their job. Um, yeah. Yes, that, and that gives a fan an opportunity to like play being a GM, like make those decisions. Would you make that trade? Would you bench that player? Um, you know, outlook for this week, all those decisions. And so I'm just sort of thinking about the timeline. So you started uh, in 2009, is that right? That's right, yes. Yep, summer, uh, July 2009, we launched it with baseball. So if my quick Googling is right, the, the book Moneyball came out in 04 and the movie came <laughs> out in 11. And That's so right. What, did the book and the movie create even more sort of pent-up demand or do you think they were just tapping into a natural thing that was sort of already I think there? There's, I think this has been a big, yeah, a big theme for maybe 20 years. So fantasy sports itself actually originally started about the 60s. Like originally people played fantasy sports by like pen and paper and they would fax results and people would copy stuff down from the back of the USA Today. Pretty hardcore. And, and uh, Was they, it Courier Pigeon before fax there? And there was, <laughs> somebody, somebody told me that, you know, the, the biggest innovation before the internet for fantasy sports was the fax machine that you could actually fax instead of post it. Um, so it grew really through the 90s. And then with the internet, it really took off 2000. People put their leagues on to ESPN, CBS, and, and, uh, and Yahoo. Um, and 2009, when we launched, which was let's take this existing season long market where people are playing with friends and create this new platform where people are playing in the, the big leagues and the competition between everyone, the best people in the country. Um, that was the big switch that we made. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And so I, I would like to get to uh, sort of how you design the category. And then I mm -hmm. think you against DraftKings had mm -hmm. a category battle that was yes. one of the most epic of all time. Yes. <laughs> um, so I definitely want to get to that. Um, but maybe just before we go there, I know there's tons, you know, because I have this conversation myself with mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. There's so much conversation in our industry today. How do I drive more engagement? Sure. How do I create uh, community? You know, we we had Sangram Vajri on from the Flip mm -hmm. Funnel podcast, and his his mantra is, uh, if you don't have a, and I might be a little off, but it's something like, if you don't have a community, you're a commodity. Yes. And so there's so much today about, oh, you know, fuck, I got to build a community mm -hmm. and I got to mm -hmm. increase engagement. And we even now, Nigel, have startups who try to build community, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months ahead That's of when their idea. product comes out. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. They are a thought leader around a set of topics yeah. and ideas and problems mm -hmm. and they're coalescing people around this. And so yeah. they become known as somebody that's bringing the world together on a set of topics mm -hmm. and problems. And then they come out with a product in that area. And so yeah. this is an emerging strategy that I find mm -hmm. fascinating. And I also, personally, I have no idea how to fucking do this. And so yes. <laughs> if I was an entrepreneur trying to emulate some of the learnings uh, of FanDuel and now in your new startup, which of course I want to yeah, talk yeah. about. What do people need to know about community and engagement and things along these lines? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big topic and it's a big question. I think the bulk of it, though, is actually pretty simple. Um, and I think a lot of people search for this kind of silver bullet. We spend a lot of time, where's the silver bullet? Where's the, the big win? And like community, I always think about two things, which is one, which is your direct relationship your community building direct connections with your customers with your community is one part and having a mechanism to do that and the other one is how do they connect with each other because if they can't connect with each other it's not a community um 
And I would say most podcasts today, they're not a community. They are, it's a broadcast medium, like people listen, but they don't know the other people who listen. They can't really connect with them. And that we see as an opportunity. And so when I talk to any business or entrepreneur who want to build a community, I always start to talk about two things. One is how do you increase your interaction and your ability to interact with your customers or your, um, your listeners? And then two, how do you enable them to connect with each other? Because when you can do those two things, then you can build a community. Mm. And what you just said sounds so simple. Yeah. And yet... Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm trying to learn how to do this. And, yeah. um, you know, I thought I was, per, you know, personally failing or not doing that yeah, well. Yeah. And people have educated me and said, well, you know, the, there's a lot of actually activity in your Facebook group. And I thought, yeah. Then I thought about it and I thought a friend of mine said that. And I was like, oh, yeah. fuck, I don't know what I'm doing on social media. Yeah, said, yeah. Well, I don't know. It seems like every time you post something in your group, there's a lot of interaction. And I thought, yeah, yeah. Hmm, mm -hmm. maybe I'm being hard on myself. And yeah. then when we, you know, we started on your platform, I think we started yeah. to see some of that. Um, mm -hmm. I think we've stalled a little bit now. I think we need yeah. to get some more people on. And plus, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Need, I need some more coaching from you on what to do. Uh, but, uh -huh. but all that said, um, is it just that simple? It's like, hey, post interesting shit, ask questions, and see if, is it, is it as simple as you show up? But if you're having a cocktail party at your house and everybody that comes over is an introvert, <laughs> try to maybe lubricate started, a little, go ask some provocative questions and, and get the conversation. I mean, is it, is it that simple? So I, how should I think I, about it? I think yes and no. So there's the, the, one of the first things is there's a platform choice. Um, and that, that's where we developed our new product. It'd be good to talk about Fleck just to explain what, what it is and, and how it is a platform choice. Um, so one of the problems with podcasts was that there wasn't a platform for this to happen. Now, other platforms like YouTube or Instagram, there is a way to interact directly with your, uh, with the with the listeners or viewers or, or uh, uh, what readers or what would you call it? Somebody who watches Instagram, <laughs> scrollers, um, scrollers, <laughs> scrollers. Um, your fans. It's mostly people, you know. My Instagram is full of uh, surf and ski photos, muscle car photos, and scantily clad. Yeah. That's so. Why are you a lurker? If you do, if you look but, at that shit, <laughs> a lurker. Yeah, I think so. But so th there's a platform decision, and those platforms have it now. YouTube, the community there does tend towards toxicity, and it's not great. Instagram's pretty good, um, and. The other one, obviously, Facebook has a lot of problems. And the, the big problem with Facebook is that people invest a lot of time building Facebook communities um, and Facebook groups, but then Facebook deprioritized them. And they just sort of said, no, actually, we don't want that in people's feeds. We've got all this Russian propaganda that we want to be putting in people's feeds. <laughs> and we get all these ads we want to be putting in people's feeds. And so you know, they turned out to be a very bad turn for podcasts and that they built these groups up and those groups got marooned. Like, you know, I actually chat to a lot of people here are in podcast fan groups and they would say, oh, I, st I thought you stopped posting. And you're like, no, you just don't see it anymore because, you know, somewhere in the algorithm, Facebook decided that was lower priority content. Well, and, and so and the thing that drives me crazy as a podcaster in this regard is, you know, Facebook in a very sort of direct way, and I forget exactly how they communicated it, but the communication yeah. was clear, which is like, hey, 
invite all of these people to your Facebook group. They're, That's they're right. pushing you to do it all the time. You get all these mm-hmm. notifications. You get, yeah. you know, the minute I make a new friend, they want me to invite yeah. that friend of the group and this and that and the other. And so if you enter the group, by definition, that person's raising their hand saying, I want to be part of this group and I yeah. want to see this <laughs> content. Yes, right. And we, in this case, as podcasters, I think they did the same thing to businesses and brands. Yeah, they well. did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they, to your point, they deprioritize. So it's like, and then, at least as it relates to pages, they haven't done it with yeah. yet, but you know it's coming. Mm-hmm. They charge us to quote boost the post to the people yes. who said yeah. they wanted to see the content <laughs> in the first. And you're like, yeah, unbelievable. What? Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember. Um, you know, this, this movie, the great rock and roll swindle, but this is the great mm-hmm. social media swindle. <laughs> yes. You want to pay, you need to pay us to get to your customers, like your customers who you put them here in the first place. You it, to get them there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's been ex- like, it's been amazing. Um, yeah. So about three years ago, maybe it was four years ago, Facebook did this sort of thing. You don't even need a web page. Like why would you need a web page? Everyone's here. You put them in this group and then you have access to them. But what they failed to mention was you don't own that group. Like if, if you created a, a web product that people sign up, then that's your community. But that's not your community on Facebook. It's very clearly it's Facebook's and you can rent them from Facebook, but that's all you get is renting of your existing community. And so that's been a big problem for podcasters of the last two to three years is people have built up these groups. They now don't have access to them and they don't have a good platform to sort of interact, build, build that, do that either community to community relationship or direct between the host and, and the community. And so uh, about a year and a half ago when I left Flick or left Fangil, uh, we were, we were really interested in what we had done with Fangil within fantasy sports. And we thought, what other verticals could we do this? What other categories have this issue? And the one that we hit on was podcasts. We were just like, wow, it's amazing. There's, you know, last week, 60 million people in America listened to a podcast. Like last year, half the population, but over half, 150 million. But last week, just last week, 60 million. Those are really engaged people. And those are and just the follow your different listeners. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> and they... And, and when they get to the end of that show, and this is something I've always felt personally, I've always thought, wouldn't it be really cool to chat to some other people who listen to that show? But I have no way of doing that. And, you know, I, I may have joined the Follow Your Different Facebook group, but you know what? I've lost it now because Facebook's decided it's no longer important. And that was the problem we looked at and said, there isn't really somewhere where podcasters can send their audience to, so they can talk to each other where the host can talk to the audience where they continue to own that relationship. And that's what we built in Flick. Yeah. And so I'm very excited about Flick. I, I you know, thank you so much for, mm-hmm. for allowing us to be one of the early ones and we're just starting to play and learn. And, and yeah. it's, a, it's a fun experiment and, and who knows where it's going. But, mm-hmm. but here's the thing, uh, just as a side note, when I started writing first and then podcasting second, um, I had no idea how much, and I, I know this is going to sound corny and maybe like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but how much joy uh, there would be on a regular basis, on a daily basis, interacting with listeners and readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought it might feel like a burden or mm-hmm. like a have to. And, um, and 
look, every once in a while we get a nasty email or tweet or mm -hmm. whatever. And, you know, nobody loves that. But in my attitude is generally like, if you don't like my shit, then that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Don't fuck yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but the vast, vast majority of the interactions are incredibly positive. Mm -hmm. And when you see, this is going to sound corny, Nigel, but when you see somebody write in black and white, mm -hmm what an episode meant to them or, or what the podcast means to them, or even if they're just interacting around the ideas. Mm -hmm. and talk, it, it, I, I guess my point is I didn't know personally as a podcaster and as an author, how much fun, how much joy there is for me in having this level of interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear that. And you know, I, the way I think about it is like, fandom is fundamentally important like fandom and both uh both being a fan and you know it's awesome to have fans right like having fans is you know i think a probably a fundamental um like you know of the what is it the Maslow hierarchy of needs i guess it's pretty high up there but it's, fans, fans it's, needs to be on the pyramid somewhere yeah yeah fandom definitely and, but I also feel being a fan is awesome. Like I, I'm fans of of a lot of things. Like and you know, a lot of people that I would meet that I would be incredibly excited about meeting. Um, and I, I think that's a great thing. Um, I think you have to be, you know, in a very lonely, dark, cynical place that you know you don't get excited about. I don't know, meeting certain people or, or just enjoying certain media, loving media, and and if you have a chance to interact with that host, that should be really cool. Um, yeah, and, and I've I've often thought that. Well, and it's interesting you bring this topic up because it, it's it's one I never thought about. I think most of my life I've been a pretty good fan mm -hmm. of the things that I'm really behind. But uh, one of the gifts that has come from this podcast and from writing is I have Bill Walton in my life now, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the. Grateful Dead invented the Grateful Dead <laughs> Fan Hall of Fame. Yeah. Because he <laughs> literally and figuratively, because he's damn near seven feet tall, their mm -hmm. biggest fan. Mm -hmm. And having had him on, um, you know, this podcast a couple times now and ha just having him in my life, he's the greatest fan I've ever seen. Like, mm -hmm. It, you know, he loves Neil Young. So Neil Young's got a new record out. He's telling you about it. He, in mm -hmm. a conversation with Bill, he's going to tell you about 10 books in half yeah. an hour that he loves, you know, books from the past that he read, new books he's reading. And he was an amazing fan of mine. He, he on ESPN, he'd be calling games. You know, he does the color commentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's the guy doing the play-by-play. -play. And literally on ESPN, the play-by-play -play guy would be saying, oh, you know, Johnson to Smith, over to Johnson, Johnson, oh, Johnson bumps into a couple guys who are bigger than him. And then Bill would jump in and go, that's Johnson's problem. He needs to learn how to play bigger, like my friend Christopher Lockhead <laughs> book. And then he would do a 20-second a, a infomercial in the middle of a fucking basketball game. And then, you know, Johnson back to Smith, right? And, and he was this over-the-top fan of my shit. And, and what he taught me yeah. is how great it is to be an over-the-top fan. And I've realized in yeah, some of yeah. my podcast, like I, I have all these authors on entrepreneurs like yourself and all this. And the truth mm -hmm. is, I only want you on if I'm at least in part a fan. And I want to celebrate what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, I love yeah. what you're doing now. And I'm a fan of it. And, I, and I'm inspired yeah. by what you did at FanDuel. And I'm excited by what you're doing at mm -hmm. Flick. 
and some people think, oh, it's, you know, it's corny. You should be a little more professional. You should be, uh, you shouldn't be so over the mm-hmm. top. And it's like, well, hey, if you, you know, if you, I love the Ramones. If you ask me about the Ramones, you yeah, better yeah. get ready. I'm going to tell you, right? And, and so anyway, yeah, yeah. long story longer, it's fun to be a fan. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, you know, I, I put it in another example. If you ever, I, I was in Chicago um, the time the Blackhawks won the, the Stanley Cup. And it was, it was kind of like, I, I don't really watch hockey. I still don't. And it was cool to be there, but I wasn't a fan. So it was like there's ticker tape parade. And I was with a friend of mine who was a huge fan and he had an amazing day. And I was like, it was fun, but like I didn't get any of the, you know, the benefit of being a fan. And also one of the things was, he was a fan when they sucked. And so the benefit of him that he kind of saw them go to there was just so huge. And he actually told me about it. He was actually studying sports marketing. And he said, yeah, you really need to be a fan when they suck. Because if you're not, then you don't get the true benefit of whenever they're good. There was like, there's a benefit of like seeing them through the kind of the, the, the bad days. You can kind of enjoy the highs. Yeah, you're a real fan. You're a real fan. What I love in this regard is... Um, uh, you know, it's the same thing with bands or musicians or artists, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah, well, I remember when their first he <laughs> came yeah. out and nobody ever heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw them in, you know, 1912 when they, you know, were playing in a backyard, you know, it's like that yeah, whole yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And now it's, the, you know, now it's Jay, he's Jay-Z or now he's Bruce Springsteen, whoever it is, right? There's something yeah. about like, I was with them in the they, early, when they were in the beginning and no yeah. one got it, right? There's yeah. like, coolness about that oh we, we you know you you have that in startups as well so like when you have your first like seven or eight employees and then you scale to like 200 and your your first like seven or eight are like i remember the day <laughs> there was like a you know, it's a competition and when startups scale really quickly it's like it doesn't you know it's not like well i joined in 2013 it's like i joined in like april 2013 like yeah. not you late guys who joined in like you know august <laughs> the other one i love in that regard is 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 people who know their employee number right oh their employee number I was yes employee 137 and like yeah. your employee 528 or whatever yeah. right like yeah. i you know hey I we, was- we, had, we had built it by the time you guys turned up like it was like a rocket ship you know we had built everything and you just joined jumped on board totally so there's that and you know the other one i found interesting and i learned this early in my career nigel as a cmo talk to your customers just like their employees mm-hmm and, and I think it's true throughout the life cycle of a company, but particularly in the beginning, because uh, uh, customers have that same feeling. If, if you're one of the earlier customers. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. The other one is the media. I'll never yeah. forget. And I probably shouldn't say who, but very, very early on uh, in my career, um, we got some press coverage this is back when I was at this company called mm-hmm. Science. Mm-hmm. major press coverage. And it was the first big piece of major press coverage we got, you know, sort of 18 months after founding. Anyway, uh, roughly a year or so after that, the company was a juggernaut at the time on fire and celebrated as being, you know, amazing and this and that and the other. I was at a cocktail party during the dot-com days and I, uh, I saw the journalist who wrote the story that was sort of the first big story. Mm-hmm. And he was there with his wife. And I went over to him and I'll just call him Jimmy. I said, hey, Jimmy, you know, nice to see you. Great, you know, blah, 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 chit-chatting. He introduces to me to his wife and he says, um, oh, you know, this is Christopher Lockhead. I helped break his business. And so whether it's customers mm-hmm. or the press or yes. I find this is true with analysts, 
Yeah. They, they tap into this thing. And if they feel like they helped in some way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By being an early customer, by promoting the business, by, in this mm-hmm. case, a favorable article, whatever. Yeah. It is, yeah. There's a little entrepreneur in all of us. Yes. And, and, and some people never really scratch that itch. But if, they, yeah. if, they, if they're an early customer or they're mm-hmm. an early analyst who supported you, they scratch their entrepreneurial itch and your mm-hmm. success is their success. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've absolutely seen this. Um, it's interesting. I'm on the board of a, uh, I'm a board of one other company, apart from Flick, is a, a company called Uni, which is a, makes a pizza oven, an outdoor pizza oven. Phenomenal product. Um, they started off with a Kickstarter project four, five years ago. Um, and now they've like got the category defining outdoor, portable outdoor pizza oven. And normally, if you want one, you have to get something imported from Italy and it costs like 5,000 as this huge brick thing. What they've done is they built it stainless steel. It runs on gas, wood. Fantastic. Makes, makes pizzas in one minute. But they were, we had the board meeting a couple of weeks ago and we were talking uh, about the community. They built a really great community. And they were like, how do we, I think the question was like, how do we kind of in, engage them or get them, uh, we, we want them to help them with some stuff. And I'm like, have we tried asking them? <laughs> and it seemed like such a simple thing that we were like, well, do we do this, do this? And like, I don't think we, this is one of the most engaged communities. They love this product. They love the company. It's such a great story. It's two founders who like, they didn't come out of the pizza oven industry. They, they came out of the education industry. They wanted to make great pizza. And, you know, current ovens will get to like 500 degree Fahrenheit. Their oven goes to 900. So they figured it out. They did a Kickstarter. And I'm like, your community loves your product. They love this company. Just ask them. Like, let's figure out what we'd like help with and, and let's put it out there. Um, and so, like, a lot of it is just asking, you know, having that community and just asking. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, And so uh, let's go back, if we could, for a sec to FanDuel. So Mm -hmm. how did you think or did you think about sort of um, that magical, you know, we call it the the the, the magic triangle, getting product, company, Mm -hmm. and category right at the right time? How, How did you, I mean, you did, you are one of the most legendary modern in what I would describe as intuitive category designers around. Mm-hmm. How did you figure all that out, Nigel? Ooh, um, I wish there was a science to it. I, I think I think one thing is I definitely gravitate towards doing something new. You know, I kind of, I like sort of, sort of seeing where there's sort of white space and building something new and, and, I would, I would find it very hard to be like, Hey, that kind of works. Let's copy it. And so I think that was the first point I was looking for something new. Um, and we also were up against like ESPN and Yahoo and CBS. And so we were constrained. We knew if we just sort of copied what they did and said, Hey, we'll do it better. It, it wouldn't matter. And so I think that, you know, we had a constraint, we had no money. Um, and so that sort of forced us to say, like, we're going to have to be really smart about coming up with something that's just really compelling. Um, and I think that's what sort of drove the product concept. And when we looked at the concept, we were like, okay, that's different. It seems more compelling than what's out there. Um, and from there, 
uh, we then had this issue that we had this product that the users who had found it loved it, right? We were like, wow, they, you know, the retention numbers were phenomenal, uh, but we weren't really growing. And that was an interesting point because at that point we, we had, I didn't really have any experience in marketing. Um, and I think we somewhat fell into this sort of uh, mindset at the time, which is good products will just grow. People will find it better mousetrap, which uh, you know, I know, I know is apart from a couple of small exceptions, complete bullshit. <laughs> um, and we, uh, it was actually our CMO, uh, who was my co-founder, who basically said, came up with the idea. So why don't we try advertising? And I was like, that's never going to work. <laughs> We're a tech company. Not, you know, why would we be advertising? That's like Coca-Cola. And that was, that's what built the company. We had a product that people loved. And um, uh, my co-founder figured out a way to connect with fantasy sports players and explain the product to them and sell it to them in an, a 30-second or 60-second radio ad. Um, and then, uh, you know, TV and other channels. But it was that advertising that, you know, managed to translate the product and sell it to that broader audience. And, and then that sort of feedback from that then translated back into the product. And we had this you know, really virtuous cycle, but it was the combination of really great product and just really good, innovative advertising that, that really drove the growth of the business. And what did those early ads say? Because I want to write this shit down. Here. <laughs> what did the ads say? Um, so we did a lot of endorsed radio advertising at the start. So like, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, host read uh, podcast ads. Um, and they, so the great thing about uh, Fangio or fantasy sports was that uh, if I knew that anyone listened to sports radio was a sports fan. And so we could have really good targeting. Um, the ads would, uh, like we would definitely talk a lot about the fun and excitement of playing the product. Um, I think we even in the early days, we had, had tournaments with the host. And so you could play with me in this tournament. Um, uh, that was fun. People wanted to compete with the host. Um, uh, so, you know, if it was Jim Rome, you compete against Jim Rome in this tournament, show that you're better. Um, and so uh, we just tried lots of different tests to find out what worked. Um, uh, certainly something that was new, innovative, it, it participation of the host, that, that ne nearly always worked. You know, it's funny you say podcast ads um, because uh, in spite of the growth of podcasts, you know, the advertising on podcasts is still uh, less than a billion dollars in aggregate. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I've talked to a lot of podcast advertisers, as you might expect, mm -hmm. and you use the term white space. Like, mm -hmm. this is white space yeah. that very few companies have gotten to. And, you know, uh, we've had Dan Granger on the podcast mm -hmm. from Oxford Road, and mm -hmm. they're, they might be the first. They're certainly one of the first purpose-built ad networks, yeah. ad buying on podcast. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you look at certain companies, you know, ZipRecruiter comes to mind. Yeah. They built a whole business on podcast advertising. Yeah. And, you know, my friends at NetSuite who, who, who sponsor this podcast, mm -hmm. they've done a very similar thing. Like they realized, hmm, none of our competitors are here. Podcast yeah. audience is highly engaged. Yeah. Um, this is white space. It's relatively inexpensive compared mm -hmm. to other things and away they go. 
And so it's, I find it fascinating that, you know, uh, and you identified podcasts as white space a long time ago when they were mm-hmm. less popular than they are today. Um, and so I'm just curious, do you see more new startups being built on the strength of kind of innovative, uh, whether it's podcast or some other sort of unique or different or emerging kinds of uh, advertising opportunities? So, um, so I think there's two things. Um, one, let's talk about podcasting. Um, podcasting is an enormous opportunity. Uh, it, 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 I think it's hugely undermonetized. Um, I think it's probably one of the best uh, advertising mediums today um, uh, because there's a connection with the host. Um, uh, when the host really buys into a product, it's such a strong endorsement. Um, you know, it certainly blends editorial with uh, advertising uh, in, in a good way. So, you know, the best hosts only really sell things that they believe in, and that comes across. Um, you know, you're in somebody's ear. You're literally talking to them. Uh, if you talk to some of the – if you read some of the books about the greats uh, in advertising, uh, like Claude Shannon or uh, Ogilvy, they would say advertising, the best form of advertising is selling in person. And uh, Ogilvy classically was an aga salesman. You know, he would go door to door and he would sell. And that's why he became a great advertiser because he learned how to talk to people. And you can't, it's very hard to talk to people individually and uh, tell the benefit of the product. Podcasting is like the next best thing. You, you can do it at, and you can do it at scale. Uh, so I, I think it's enormous opportunity that that's, it's very under uh, monetized at the moment. One of the reasons it's under monetized is that um, sort of dirty secret in advertising is tracking is abysmal. Um, people don't really know whether that TV campaign worked or whether that radio campaign worked. Um, and I mean, at enormous budgets, like people spending hundreds of millions, they don't really know. And they don't really know if... You know, they spend half or twice. Um, they don't know which channels really work. And it does mean when you've got a new medium like podcasting that's really effective, it's people are very slow to get to the realization that, wow, we should be spending way more on this medium as opposed to spending it on TV or some other medium they're spending on. The other thing, and look, I'm, I'm biased. So, you know, caveat, caveat, caveat. Mm-hmm. I think the standard sort of um, CPM kind of idea, uh, I, 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 I don't think that's the right measure for mm-hmm. podcasting because, you know, the there is a direct response piece. To me, podcasting mm-hmm. sort of half and half, right? Yeah. So there's a direct response piece. The host does the, the read. Often there's a there's a vanity URL associated with mm-hmm. that. You know, go to blah 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 dot com slash Mark Marin or you know Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. or whatever, whoever it is. So there's that piece, and I understand that direct. Um, uh, you know what Dan Granger calls mm-hmm. performance marketing, and yes, yeah, inherently mm-hmm. more measurable. That makes a ton mm-hmm. of sense to me. But also as a CMO myself, there's a brand value to association with certain kinds of podcasts that I think is beyond just the direct response performance. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, when a when a because, and here's the aha for me. I didn't know this coming in. If you're way into a podcast, like I think about the podcast that I love, I develop a personal relationship with that host. Mm-hmm. They're like a person in my life that yes. I look forward to having in my life. And to your point, when they say something nice about you know ZipRecruiter, mm-hmm. it, 
it can't help if you like the person telling you yes, about yeah, ZipRecruiter, yeah. you can't help but like ZipRecruiter at least a little. Mm-hmm. And I think that Absolutely. part that is not necessarily performance, but I would call it more brand and more category awareness than yeah. uh, performance uh, oriented, yes. I think is undervalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think so. Therefore, this is my argument to advertisers. <laughs> uh, therefore, podcasts are worth a lot more than just CPMs. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's totally true. You get both. Um, like when we did uh, Fangio, we were a direct response advertiser, but we also thought about brand, how, how, what the brand response was. And a great um, a great marketeer once told me, and this was uh, actually, it's Greg Creed, who's now uh, CEO of Yum Brand. So he runs, he ran marketing for like Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. Um, and he always said to me, he said, uh, sales overnight, brand over time. And he said the very best advertising, you know, people will come in and buy, like people will come into KFC and buy because they saw it at uh, and and there's and that's directly relevant and he said and if we run an ad and people don't come in he said then it wasn't a good ad and he said but at the same time what I want to see is my brand develop over time and so the best ads do both and podcast ads definitely do both they they get people who are in the market because most people like a lot of people might not be in the market for a recruiter and so today I might be like it's not going to sell me but people who are in the market are going to go okay that sounds cool I'll go and try that but the people who are not in the market it's building the brand and when they come in the market for it then they're like, oh, yeah, I'll go and use a recruiter. Well, and, and, and to your point on that, and I think this is something more podcasters need to be cognizant of, um, there are podcasts out there that are highly spe- specific, very niche-oriented, mm-hmm. that have good size audiences, but if you compare them to, you know, Mark Marin or NPR or Joe yeah, Rogan yeah. or Tim Ferriss or, you know, whoever you want to compare mm-hmm. them to, they look relatively small. But yes. you say, okay, well, wait a minute. When you understand who the demographic is, you understand mm-hmm. that the people who love this podcast consume, you know, almost every episode. You know, the, there are podcasters out there with what I would call more niche or audience yes. who charge yeah. rates that from a CPM point of view sort of blow out all the mm-hmm. models. Yeah. And I think more podcasters need to be considerate of this when, because if you just look at from a CPM point of view, that's one metric that matters. But the flip side is, hey, who's in that CPM? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of get to this audience, to your point, in a deeply mm-hmm. committed way. I think some podcasters undervalue them. Here's my theory. You tell me if you think I'm on a path here. One of the reasons the podcast advertising number is so low is I think many podcasters, particularly independent podcasters, undervalue their podcast totally when true. they stay to this, just the CPM mm-hmm. model. But that's my theory. I'm curious what yours. Yeah, yeah, th- that's definitely true. So the, one of the challenges uh, as an advertiser, and so Fangil, uh at, at scale, we were spending about 300 million. So we spent a lot, but we spent, um, I think one of the differences with us in a lot of companies is we were highly measured. Everything we spent, we could figure out or at least approximate a return on investment on it. So, for example, on radio, we would have had hundreds and hundreds of people endorsing the product. But we knew at a per channel, per presenter, per time slot, 
performance information. We, uh, I think at one point we were using tracking codes to track performance. And I think at one point we were tracking something like 5,000 different codes. And so I could tell you that Bubba the Love Sponge was bringing in like a $5 CPM, whereas, you know, this other presenter next radio show up the up you know in Florida was like at a at a you know two hundred and so we're going to cut that guy and we're going to double down on on, on Bubba the Love Sponge so this was and so and we would be doing that on a day to day basis and so one of the challenges with the smaller podcasts is now I'm going to have to measure I'm going to have to manage like a hundred podcasts and that's a challenge and the, the infrastructure is not really there for that but if you can do that yes having a hundred of these small niche ones that are exactly your audience is really where you want to be as opposed to being a much bigger podcast that isn't as well targeted and and you would pay like because ultimately the advertiser it's the you know it's the roi that matters it's not the cpm and if i can get a podcast that is a hundred percent the people i want to target I will pay 20 times more on a CPM basis for one that is, say, 5% targeted. And that's the sort of aha that I don't think mm-hmm. has happened in the mind of marketers at scale. Yeah. And to your point on the podcast growth, my best guess is that over the next two to three years, this light bulb is going to go on. It says, wait a minute, this is not just the domain of performance marketers. Mm-hmm. It's not just direct marketing. Yes. It's a real brand value. There's a massive long tail value. Um, uh, my producer, Jamie, uh, was just walking me through some of the uh, download numbers for our podcast of our mm-hmm. back catalog. And mm-hmm. when I look at um, you know, people who've downloaded in the last six months episodes that are uh, a year and a half old, I just go, what's going on here? <laughs> and the yeah. only conclusion you can come to is that newer listeners are going back. Yeah. And yeah. so you would think, you know, everybody cares about downloads in the first 30 to 60 days. Mm-hmm. The truth is a podcast has a long tail. And if somebody gets into it, I know this is true for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of one of my new favorite discoveries is a podcast called Canadian True Crime. Okay. Yes. I love serial killers and mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I love all that stuff. Um, and, um, and this gal, her name's Christy Lee, who does this podcast. She's just one gal. And she mm-hmm. does it incredibly well researched, and she, you know, it's it, it's gorgeously done. Yeah. And so when I discovered her, I listened to a couple episodes, and the needle went way deep in the vein, and I binge listened to her. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's true for many of us. If you find something yes. to get really into, and so I think to to your point, there's a tale on a podcast that is yeah. highly unusual. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually it's not just within podcasts this idea of going to. Uh, like they talk about it, micro influencers. Um, that's what there's a, a more of a trend from going from one big influencers to managing a large number of micro influencers because they're more targeted um, and they may have more authenticity, more of a connection with their audience. And the performance marketers are seeing better performance there than they are with the bigger influencers. Fascinating. Now, I'm also dying to ask you, when we first talked, you said to me something, and I want to make sure I heard it right, because it's been rattling around in my head ever since. Uh, so you had the, back at FanDuel, you had the, mm-hmm. you're building the category, you're building the brand, you're doing this innovative uh, advertising and so forth. You're competing against the traditional guys. Mm-hmm. You, you said you had something different, you had something new, and you had constraints that forced you to do those things in some yeah. way. 
So I think that's a very interesting mm-hmm. learning. Yes. But then you had DraftKings. Yeah. And am I remembering this right? Did you tell me that DraftKings spent 500 million US dollars in a year trying to beat you guys as the category king? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was 2015. So, A, what's it like when an upstart competitor says, I'm taking you out and I'm putting half a billion dollars on this bet? And then, of course, B, you emerge as the category king anyway. <laughs> so, so it's, can, it, can you walk me through that? I'm fascinated. Yeah, yeah it's pretty horrific um, because... Like, what are the challenges there? And to be fair with DraftKings, you know, so they started in 2012. Uh, like, they essentially copied our product and said, but we're going to do it bigger. We're going to raise more. We're going to spend more. Um, and they they were very ruthless in copying the, the product and, and also our marketing strategy. Um, uh, and I, I definitely give them credit for that. Uh, the challenge then was uh, 2015 rolled around they're what they basically were like we're gonna we're either going to win or we're going to destroy the category like we're going to spend so much that uh it's going to destroy the economics um and we in sort of 2014 between us i think we'd spent somewhere just over 100 million and so we knew the category could support that in terms of acquisition spend unit economics were still good we were acquiring users for something like 70 dollars lifetime value was in the hundreds of dollars and so whenever 2015 came around we knew they were planning this huge ramp up in spend and they also were basically going to media companies and said we'll pay you whatever like we'll pay you three times what what Vangel's paying and so what we saw was the the fundamental economics of the category were being destroyed so the the value creation was going to the media companies um you know we had at one moment i remember we did a, a deal with a um uh, a very large radio uh, business, uh, satellite radio. I'll give away who their name is. And they called us up and they were like, we had a deal with them, which was exclusive. And they were like, we've got DraftKings in the line. They're going to pay like five times what you guys paid. But saying we've got a relationship with you, you can you can have it for their terms and you've got like two hours to make a decision. <laughs> and so we're doing the math on it and we're like, okay. Nice to have a good business partnership. Yes, exactly. So we're doing the math on it and we're like, that's, if we do that, like that just totally destroys the value. And then we said, well, wait a second. This was January, 2015. If every other media partner we have, partner, media partner does this, then this is going to destroy the economics of the industry for everyone. Um, and so we looked at it and we went, okay, our choices are we, you know, take our ball and go home, just sort of say, like, we're just going to concede it. Or uh, I think there was three. There was like that, or we go big, we try and outdo them, outspend them. Or what the approach was we take is we stay disciplined. We, we're going to, we're going to bid where it makes sense and we're going to lose partners where it doesn't make sense. Uh, and that was the third course that we took. We stayed disciplined. We, we actually spent 250 to 300 million in 2015, which was a crazy amount of money. Um, but because we stayed disciplined, we managed to maintain pretty good unit economics. Um, 
but it was really tough because you sort of saw not only was, you know, there was a threat to us as a company, but there's like a threat to the entire category that suddenly the entire category investors look at it and say, this is a money pit uh, just through the competition. And yet, in spite of a $500 million ad spend in mm-hmm. 12 months or so, mm-hmm. you not only remain the category king, you continue to uh, take ground on them. Uh, no, so they certainly gained a lot of ground in 2015. Uh, they, you know, but I'm mean, 2014, we gained right? ground, 2015. And by about 2016, the companies were about uh, parity. Um, the, the the next big shift then happened over the last 12 months, which is the emergence of sports betting. And, and now uh, FanDuel again has moved you know, very much into the number one spot. I think it's got you know, 50. To, so in New Jersey, which is the new battleground uh, for sports betting, I think FanDuel's got something like a 55% market share and DraftKings got something like a 30 30% market share uh, and between them uh, they own like 80 85% of that market and then there's lots of other sort of sports betting operators own the remaining 10% and, and so was it because you were first or very early in designing this the betting part that allowed you to uh, once once they were at parity with you allowed you to take more ground or what what yeah. was it that allowed you to actually beat them in the end i think i think a lot of it was around discipline um, like we consistently requiring users for about half the cost of them. So even when they were saying, we'll spend twice as much, we could acquire the same number of customers. Um, and so we always had a, like we were going to be aggressive discipline. That, that was aggressive discipline was our mantra. And I think, you know, 2016, 2017, times became a lot more constrained uh, in terms of funding. And so given that, the budgets were much more constrained, given that we had more discipline and how we acquired customers, that sort of you know put us in a really strong position. Absolutely fascinating. Now I know there's some big learnings around um, that you take away from FanDuel on how to finance a company like <laughs> this. Yeah. What are sort of your big uh, your big takeaways as you go forward in your entrepreneurial journey? And I know you're tail is a, uh, and you know, kick me if it's not appropriate to talk about some of it, but there's some, there's some cautionary things. in, in Yes. Because, you know, when I first met you, I thought it was totally cool that you were doing Flick, but, you know, I sort of thought, well, you know, you, you probably made $250 million <laughs> or $500 million, or, you know, some giant amount of money yeah, yeah. at FanDuel. Isn't this interesting that this incredibly wealthy, I think you're a very young man, Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> entrepreneurs still having at it. And so I, I'm just curious how you think about how you financed FanDuel mm-hmm. and what you what learnings you have now. Yeah, so, um, and I advise lots of entrepreneurs now. It's, it's been one of the nice things of kind of getting out of a really big company that FanDuel become is that I can work with lots of entrepreneurs and kind of, and especially that first funding round. Um, you know, so I... I gravitate towards companies. I want to build companies that will scale really fast in new categories and, and also businesses that um, like Flick where monetization is not going to be upfront. And for those types of businesses, you're going to raise venture capital. Um, now, there's other types of businesses. I mentioned Uni, they build a physical product. They've built, they've bootstrapped it. Um, and it's great. And they're doing it. That business is going to be an enormous business. Um, 
and it's great to be working with them. But but what I love to do, uh, like Flick, is is more of I want to build a consumer product. I want to build the user base, and then I want to monetize later. And so I'm going to have to raise venture capital. And and with Flick, we raised four million last year to do that. And so the question then is. Who do I raise money from, or you know, in what terms? And and that's what I work with a lot of seed stage and Series A companies on. And it's interesting, and I, and I think people have started to realize that valuation is not the number one thing they focus on. I think everyone's guilty of it. There's definitely a kind of a glory of hitting a, a valuation. Um, and they asked me what my when I talked to them, I said the priorities of what you're looking for in your investment round. And one and two are very close, but when I look for money, I look for investors, it's the number, the kind of order is firm, partner, uh, terms, valuation. So valuation's like fourth um, in order of importance. I think number one is is the firm. Uh, Who is the fund? And for that what I always advise them to be looking for is when you go to their website, is it like huge profiles of these partners and how great they are in their great career? Or is it founders? Is, do they realize that founders is what makes their business tech and that they are front and center, a service provider to those founders? You know, They are there in a competitive market. They're looking for the very best founders. And if they do understand that, you know their web their their website is going to have their founders front and center. And when you talk to those partners, do they, um, you know, do or if you talk to entrepreneurs they funded, do they talk about these guys and said, you know, they're amazing? Uh, and do, are they amazing when things are really bad? Uh, that's always this funny. Like you get a reference in someone and they say, well, how's your business gone? Great. Oh, this fund, you know, this firm's great. How's your business going? Oh, it's just going up and to the right. That value is, you know, that reference worthless. But whenever you speak to someone and said, yeah, we were in hell for three years and, you know, struggling to make payroll and this, this fund was phenomenal, then that's your reference point. And so I think it's fun, number one. Number two is the partner, someone that you're going to work with for five to 10 years. Um, they're, their quality as an individual, their ethics, their knowledge of the space. Um, that's you know your just your ability to work with that person. Um, I, I think that's probably number two. Uh, terms um, and and terms also say a lot about the fund. You know, if they're asking for lots of control rights, if they're asking for lots of downside protection, it says what sort of fund they are. They're they're in this to make sure that they don't lose money and that even if you get wiped out, that they do okay. And so, you, you know, you want to look out there. And then number four is valuation. Um, it, it's the one that's a sort of fourth importance. If you take all of those top three, your valuation is probably going to be in market. Um, and, you know, if you can get multiple term sheets, you can test that. But it's really of the fourth importance if you can take the first three. And what advice would you give Nigel? So I, I love your list and I, I completely <laughs> agree with it. It's interesting. I, I, I see this all the time. I'll have a conversation with an entrepreneur about a funding round. They'll go off. They'll do the round. They'll come back. They'll tell me who they did the round with. And I'll just go, what, 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 why do you do that? <laughs> yeah. These are no name people. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a, there is a correlation between top tier VC mm-hmm. and top tier outcome. There is. Yeah. Yeah. There is. 
all money is not created equal. And the entrepreneurial system, yeah, but they'll, they'll go to your point. They'll go straight to terms. They gave yeah. us, you know, 30% better terms and, yeah. and that and the other. And I'm like, yeah, but you got Huey, Dewey, and Louie on mm-hmm. your board now. Yeah. Right? Um, and so uh, I think that's a fascinating learning. Mm-hmm. But the other one I'm also interested in, you did not make anywhere near the amount of money personally and your co-founders mm-hmm. on FanDuel that, that I would have expected had you had, let me call it this, uh, say it this way, mm-hmm. you tell me, uh, but a more uh, traditional set of entrepreneurial oriented VCs. You, you, you yes. brought in VCs who um, maybe, yeah, you tell me how you think about it, but were, were, didn't feel bad about making sure that you didn't make any money. <laughs> yes. Um, there is that, yes. And I think if I go back to my how I advise startups, that's you know I think if if you follow that formula of looking at those four criteria, then you end up in a better better outcome. Yeah, and so I, I and this is why I like VCs who of course have a track record, and I find there's an eerie correlation between track record. And VCs who are entrepreneurs before becoming VCs, as opposed mm-hmm. to just financiers. And I'm not saying there aren't some financiers. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely exceptions to that. Sure. I, I've kind of, I, you know, and I've kind of gone back and forth on that. And I, um, I, I actually I think where I am is the best VCs I've worked with. They're either uh, former operators uh, who've had significant operate and, and significant founding experience. Uh, um, you know, who've founded companies, whether they've been successful or failed, but they've they've struggled. You know, they've yeah. kind of you know they've had the the pain. Um, and then there's the kind of the pure uh, ones who've gone through a finance track. And there's a couple of those I've worked with that have been great. The ones I've actually found to be the worst have been the ones that have had some operating experience or some you know some kind of early stage experience. And and again, there's a couple of exceptions that are great, but a lot of those ones, because they they kind of think they've done it, you know, like, oh, I joined eBay when they had 20 employees. And so I know all about like, you know, successful startups. And so I'm, I now have a license to advise you on dealing with, you know, payroll issues when you have eight employees or yada, yada. And, and that's where I think I've, uh, you know, I've probably sort of come across the most, but it's, it's a huge mix, but certainly the VCs that have been best have been the ones who've been on the ground, who've been through the pain and get just how challenging it is to just get anything done in a startup. They, yes. they are skewed much better on, on being high value uh, VCs. And it's funny, this is just a side sort of, um, it's more than a pet peeve, but however you want to think about it for me. You know, everybody today wants to be, um, an advisor, an influencer, a coach, mm-hmm. uh, a, a this and a that. And it's like, well, um, if you have 20 minutes of experience, um, maybe you're not going to be the greatest quote unquote coach or advisor, right? Like, <laughs> you know, if you're going to go surf, get a surf coach, like you want, I want somebody who's been a professional surfer or yeah, yeah. You know, like go, Anyway, I, it, it's interesting. I was talking to an entrepreneur that I work with uh, actually yesterday and um, very early stage company. And they uh, were super excited because they got, um, uh, they applied to one of these incubators, a very well-known one mm-hmm. I won't mention. 
And, and they're just in the early stages of working with this incubator now. And I said, I said, so how's it going? He said, you know, they're, they're good, but we're a little surprised. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, a lot of the people they have working with us have, have sort of only one or two companies behind them. And, you know, we get more in 10 minutes with guys like you and mm-hmm. our other investors and advisors who are true been there, done that guys. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's because uh, there's 30 years of scars on this back, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. The, um, I remember uh, years ago saying to one of my, one of my board members, um, he was a really good VC. And uh, I said, you know, what really surprised me about VCs was, I guess I going in thought there was like a, a, a bar. Like I sort of thought they were all good, you know, good to really good. Like I could see who was really good, but I thought the worst were like good. And, and what I realized was that it actually is much more of like a bell curve. And, and that there's like a top ten percent who are phenomenal, like who just like are transformative to your business, and then there's you know like the next twenty percent who are you know really good, you know are really helpful, and then there's like a sort of a big fat like fifty percent who are like just like total you know they're there you know they'll go to board meetings you know they're not like a negative they're just like not a positive there's really nothing there and then there's like 20 percent that'll actively destroy your business whether consciously or not and and that just really surprised me that there wasn't like this i don't know minimum like exam they had to pass you know <laughs> they couldn't get into the industry um well nigel so that- i think uh, what we need to do in this situation is three things i think we need to increase revenue improve yeah. margins and decrease costs. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, 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 and that takes two hours to go through that discussion. Yeah. Now let's get into the spreadsheet and talk. Let's, t- <laughs> let's pick this shit up and have this conversation. Right. Uh, or, you know, I, I, this was years ago now, but I was on a public company board and I ended up resigning. And, and one of the reasons I resigned was the board was micromanaging the business. We would spend half the board meeting digging into the forecast. Yeah. And like grill, like, like the, like, like the CEO was a sales rep and we were doing a, a, a quarterly, you know, territory review. I'm like, this, mm. it, this is either the CEO is terrible or we're terrible, but there's something wrong here. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I totally said no. No, it's funny when I, I was trying to VC about it and he, he was saying, I, I told him I was surprised with this and he said, you know what? Uh, entrepreneurs are pretty much the same bell curve, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's not like there's a minimum bar for entrepreneurs. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. Like, I think we should all recognize the world as a bell curve. And, yes. uh, you know, just because someone has VC written out, it doesn't mean that they're above average. Doesn't make them above. Yeah, exactly. And, and listen, when I was a kid, uh, entrepreneur was a fancy word for unemployed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, actually, I've always sort of thought about it. It's like, you know, I always aspired to be an entrepreneur. And what I didn't realize was that it's, you know, in a way it's easy to become an entrepreneur. What you really should aspire to be a successful entrepreneur. <laughs> that's, there's a big difference, you know, like the, the first, you can get the one word pretty easily. You know, you just quit your job and you go do something. You got the entrepreneur, but it's successful is what you're listening to. Yeah. Slight difference makes a big difference. <laughs> big difference, yeah, absolutely. Now, what are your sort of uh, hopes and dreams for for Flick, Nigel? Yeah, so we we look at a uh, you know I look at a lot of the other sort of communication platforms. I look at like 
Reddit, uh, a lot of ways I look at Facebook. And I, I sort of, I find, and I, and I use both products, I find like a lot of people just find them quite um, disappointing. <laughs> just find them, um, like I just feel that they're, there's no reason that the internet can't have a place for like intelligent conversation. Like it's, there's no reason why just when you put technology in front of somebody, they should become trollish and, uh, and just nasty. And like, and so we do think that there's an opportunity for the flick platform to be somewhere where people can form a community, can have intelligent conversation. Like it doesn't mean that they can't be dicks to each other once in a while. Like, you know, within a, in a context of community, but it should be somewhere you should go and be able to hang out with people and have fun, um, and 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 also sort of feel it as sort of welcoming. I have some association, and we think that podcast is an amazing place for that because it is where somewhere people go to sort of connect with a, a host and with a topic, and they have a shared interest with the other people who listen. But we think that. That's great, but what you think it is, is it could create these communities where people have a connection with other people, and and it's like they have a really fun and intelligent conversation with other people that they just will not be getting on Reddit or, or on Facebook. So that's our, our big aspiration. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. I try uh, to engage. Uh, mm-hmm. It's gotten harder and harder as we've scaled. So I, mm-hmm. I, I'm at that place where I feel under the bus and I know we miss stuff and I feel bad about that. But anyway, that, that's a separate note. But I also try to have respectful dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to disagree with somebody, I try to go over the top in on the front end of the disagreement and sort of say, hey, listen, I, I respectfully disagree with mm-hmm. you and then have yeah. it. Like, I, I'm not, I don't want to have a pissing contest. It's not, yeah, yeah. I don't find it cool to read it when people are fighting with you. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to fight with you. I, I may want to have a debate with you, but I, I online, I try way further because you can't hear nuance in voice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to disagree with somebody or I'm going to debate somebody on something um, that I do it respectfully. Like, re- mm-hmm. recently, I'm, I'm a member of all these podcast groups on Facebook. And this podcaster posted this thing that sort of said, hey, um, let me share with you the email that we send to our guests to help to get the guest to promote our show. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and here's the Twitter link and here's the Facebook link and here's the email I want you to send. And, and then, oh, by the way, when you're done doing all this marketing of your episode on my podcast, don't forget to rate and review my pod and all this stuff. And then all these podcasters are saying, oh, thank you. This is a great template. I'll use this template. And it's a, it's a best practice in podcasting. Mm-hmm. That the way you build your podcast is you have a guest on who has mm-hmm. some big social presence and yeah. you get that guest to share the shit out of the show. Well, guess what? I have a completely different point of view. Yeah. <laughs> I think this makes you look like a wanker. Yeah, yeah. And, and my theory goes like this. Uh, and I don't mean to be immodest, but listen, I've been on CNBC. I, I, I blogged for Fortune for years. Mm-hmm. I blogged for CBS News for years. Uh, I've been on some of the top podcasts as a guest. When you go on CBS or you go on CNBC, they don't email you afterwards going, hey, yeah. tweet out the stick. <laughs> they don't do that, right? Yeah. And when you go on a, a top podcast, mm-hmm. they don't do that either because they think it's their job to build the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is, you know what? If it's a great podcast, the guest is going to share the show. Yeah, yeah. 
And on top of that, if you have a big time guest on, you know, yeah. you have Stan, General Stanley yeah. Crystal on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to send him <laughs> this email? Anyway, yeah. so I had this counterpoint of view. Right. And, and I, I, I find myself doing this often, but all that is just, and I started off by saying, listen, I mean this respectfully. And mm-hmm. I know this might not make me friends, but I, I think you should think very seriously before sending emails. Like yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, you know, and I can understand the aspiration and the ask there. And a lot of times, you know, you do the ask and then it makes sense. Um, the challenge in email is it isn't a great medium to make an ask or to disagree. Like you lose the context, you lose tone of voice. Um, and it does create a lot of these issues that, you know, you said this out and the other person just misinterprets it. And, uh, you know, as, as you go back to Ogilvy, the best way to sell is in person, you know, like when you're actually talking to that person, um, now email is just loses so much of that. And it's not, if you're making a big ask, it's, it can come across badly. Yeah. Now, Nigel, is there anything else you want to talk about before we uh, before we wrap? I want to be respectful of your time. Clearly, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we should definitely give a shout out for the the Flick Group, uh, which we're which we're building for yes. uh, for for this podcast. So, if you want to get on it, um, if you go to the App Store and download uh, Flick Chat, if you search for Flick Chat, um, the this podcast is in the directory. So there's a little plus button, and you can look in it. Uh, or or you can uh, let me just actually have a quick look. There's a quickie URL. We can we'll include yeah. all this in the show. If notes. we include it in the show notes, yeah. yeah. If we uh, and you can click on the show notes, and if you click on it from your phone, it'll download the app and it'll take you straight into the group. Um, and you can see the, the other people in it. But yeah, it's uh, the group's kicking off. Uh, it's just starting. Um, I'm I'm pretty excited that we can we can really grow this one. I, I am too, and I will admit I have no idea what we're doing. It is a total experiment, <laughs> uh, but so far it's been a fun experiment. It's been good. Uh, yeah, no, I think we can really grow it. And I think I don't know. You tell me. There's probably enough content and enough people there that we can, um, you know, begin to do more with it. And so yeah, I I, I would I would love to see uh, more people there. And I think, um, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see for us in particular, but mm-hmm. I think for everybody, can we build a niche uh, community around podcasts yes. outside of the traditional platforms? And yeah. because here's what I see. I see this sort of, there's a Venn diagram in my head emerging around podcasting, which is podcasting becoming more social, more community oriented, more sharing oriented. Uh, and, and so podcasts are, I think, because of you and maybe some others going to more from a uh, podcaster delivering content, you know, like mm-hmm. a broadcast medium, and mm-hmm. that's sort of the end of it, to having it be much more of an engaged, much more of a community, much more of a collaborative conversation yeah. oriented thing around fans of, of the podcast. And so I think it's it's going to be fascinating over the next few years, Nigel, thanks to you, to see how podcasting morphs from mostly a one-way medium today mm-hmm. to this kind of conversational community medium. That's certainly our hope. Like we 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 think that we can turn it from broadcast to a community. Uh, we absolutely think there's an opportunity for that. And I'm fascinated, and I'm 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 very grateful that our friend uh, Paul Martino put us together, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm very grateful that you have bestowed me with the honor of being amongst the first on the Flick platform to begin this uh, 
social experiment that we're that we're on together. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right. That's anything great. else, Nigel? That's it. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Christopher. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there he is. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nigel as much as I did. Now, my friends at NetSuite um, want to underscore having legendary success takes some planning. And part of that planning is knowing your numbers, because today, more than ever, if you want to drive growth, you got to be on top of your numbers. Imagine having every critical number in your business that you need to manage and grow your business on your smartphone anytime, anywhere. That's what NetSuite makes happen. With some awesome dashboards, you can stay on top of all of the seminal areas of your business, including sales, finance, accounting, uh, orders, inventory, and even HR instantly. And um, it turns out that about 65% of the tech companies that have gone public lately run on NetSuite, and it's not an accident. And now NetSuite's available to you, and it's surprisingly cost-effective. Visit netsuite.com slash different, and there you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry at netsuite.com slash different. Because with NetSuite, you're going to know your numbers, and when you know your numbers, you're going to be able to grow your business. All right. We would like to thank the awesome Nigel Eccles and his great new company, Flick. You can check them out at flickapp.com or uh, search the App Store in Apple or in Google and, um, and, and download the Flick app directly. And as I mentioned off the top, we have a, a beta version of, um, of a community set up on Flick uh, that you can check out as well. OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out at the number one LifeFullyLived.org. My new marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for making Lockhead on Marketing one of the top new business podcasts and um, one of the top 200 overall podcasts. I couldn't believe it. Um, for a while there, both Follow Your Different and Lockhead on Marketing have been charting in the top overall 200 podcasts on Apple. Uh, to say I'm blown away uh, doesn't even begin to uh, articulate how uh, incredible that is. And um, listen, make no mistake, we know that that happens because you share these podcasts. So thank you so much for sharing both Follow Your Different and Lockhead on Marketing. Check out bottleneck.online helping you scale yourself with the power of virtual assistance, bottleneck.online, growwire.com, what legendary entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people are reading, check out growwire.com. My friends at Spiro are the leaders in proactive relationship management for salespeople who want to produce legendary results, check out Spiro, S-P-I-R-O.ai. And my friends at Splunk, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check them out at Splunk.com today. And the incredible people at Habitat for Humanity uh, who, who are striving to build a world where everybody has a place to live. Check out Habitat.org today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this Oddcast is the sole property for the Oddcast, the Lockhead Oddcast Network. <laughs> and we do love it when you share it. Uh, warning, this Oddcast clearly goes better with libations. Um, support global happiness and buy John's crazy socks. Be a podcast legend and tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Uh, listen to Janis Joplin. 
Uh, don't forget that happy chickens make healthy eggs and only pasture-raised uh, free-range eggs is what we're looking for here, people, because chickens are people too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Craig Landau, CEO of Purdue Pharma. Sorry, Craig, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And of course, till we're together again, follow your different. 